Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. Welcome to the heart I'm Caitlin Prest. This mini-season is serialized, so you should start at episode one if you're just coming to us now. Also, trigger warning, this is about child sexual abuse. This is silent evidence. I don't know how you would bring it up as a seven, eight, nine-year-old like, I need to know that I'm the only one. Where's the one that I have no idea what you're talking about? In the last episode, Tennessee came up with a bunch of schemes to speak out about what happened. She was trying to bring attention to the issue in any way that she could. Her ideal was to sit down and have a talk with the man who touched her vulva as a kid. Let him know why what he did was fucked up and why he should never do it again. In the last episode, she does have a talk with him under the guise of an art project, but she doesn't feel quite prepared to talk about the abuse. Afterwards, she decides to leave town, work on a sailboat, and she falls for a young man who is taken by her dance moves and her dead baby tooth. This is episode three, Hands on the Wheel. The summer I fell in love with Yeshe was a summer I wished would never end. He comes to visit me on the sailboat I work on. At night, we crash together on a tiny couch, all six feet of me and all six foot five of him, sweetly intertwined until morning when we make each other coffee and go together on a run. The way our bodies fit feels really good. <laughs> We're so quiet. I thought I might have got some walnuts. But these sweet moments are often interrupted with thoughts of what I'd seen months before when I went to Yusefi's gym. How many other students of his will spend decades struggling secretly over something that happens in their lessons? How many more might there be because I hadn't held him accountable? I'd spent the last year trying to address this on my own. I don't really trust the criminal justice system to do it right because it doesn't feel like a system that believes in people's ability to change. Maybe it's because I spend every day submitting my fate to the wind 
that I suddenly feel ready to let go. Stop obsessing over holding Yusefi accountable on my terms. I'm ready to use a system that's in place to deal with it. Good morning, Sergeant Brown. Um, I got your phone number from uh, Susan Britton from the... Um, on November 7th, 2013, I leave a message on the answering machine of a sergeant with an SVU in Virginia. I'm calling to report, um, report a crime. So, yeah, if you could give me a call back. I imagine the phone ringing on a desk with a stack of files, all of them uninvestigated rape cases. But to my surprise, the sergeant calls me back right away. He tells me there's no statute of limitations in Virginia. I can't believe it. He tells me there could be prosecution. He tells me a detective named Kimberly Norton will be following up with me. All of this time, part of me felt safer knowing going to court wasn't an option. But it is. Ten days later, on November 17th, I fly to Virginia. I'm 32 years old now. I'm rocking a black wool beanie and a black sweatshirt with the hood flipped up. Detective Kimberly Norton picks me up and we drive to the police precinct, Prince William County, Virginia. She brings me up to a police interview room. I'm here to make an official report. I could just have you sit on that side because I have a camera in here and then I'll pick you up. I take a seat in the plastic chair across from Norton. I leave my hat on and my hood up. My body feels tense and cold, yet I'm sweating. Um, so the, can you tell me, I don't know if you remember the very first time, can you mm-hmm. tell me the first memory that you have of something that you felt uncomfortable with and what that uh, memory was? Yeah, um, I mean, I think there was definitely, I mean, in terms of the, the, the sexual abuse, as I'm calling it, that he had set up this mat, a floor mat, but that he could prop up. And it was in that moment when he would sort of be like, oh, your leotard is too big. And in order to show me how big it was, slide his hands into my leotard. I'm scared she's going to drill down to what happened and finally say what I'm afraid might actually be true. Just the hands in the pants. That's all. Yeah. And you said that his hand made skin-to-skin contact yeah. with your vagina. Mm-hmm. And that um, did his fingers ever penetrate inside of your vagina or was it outside? Do you remember if you were wearing, if you wore underwear with your leotards? Or? I don't remember if I was. I Probably. That would... Um, yeah, probably. Um, and you just remember finger to skin contact. Yeah, and I don't think he penetrated me. I mean, what I remember is that sort of feeling of his hand rubbing back and forth mm-hmm. while he's explaining to me that my leotard is too big, but for just like way too much time, like mm-hmm. just like. Like, I guess, are you describing, like, back when you were thinking to yourself, maybe I'm wrong for feeling this way, and maybe, in the beginning, the yeah. very first time was like, oh, 
maybe it was just me. You just kind of like threw your gut out the window and said, he's an adult. I should trust an adult. And they yeah, I mean, again. I mean, I don't know if I processed it that far. To my surprise, Detective Norton isn't really focusing on just the act. What happened? How many times? What kind of evidence I have to prove it? She's asking about the ways I felt manipulated by him. She's asking me about how I internalized that manipulation. She asked me about my running habit. Adults and words have lasting impacts. Yeah. And I can see that for 25 years, that his words of him labeling you, of basically not being able to focus or concentrate, yeah. you spent 25 years trying to prove, maybe to yourself or to the world, that you can focus and concentrate. That I actually do have self-discipline. And that yeah. you do things that are along those lines that are like, I'm a runner and it takes great focus and it takes intense concentration when everything goes out the window. Like you said, you're a long distance runner. Yeah, and it's interesting because they remember running and crying and, and thinking about what happened. Mm-hmm. And sort of like knowing in my mind that I had proved to myself that I was strong and disciplined and that I was a good athlete, but that it was such a secret thing because nobody besides me understands what that represents. Right. And so it was like a, it was sort of a moment to celebrate that I couldn't celebrate with anybody. After almost an hour of questions, Detective Norton points out to me that even running, my sacred, safe place, has been tainted with the pain of what happened. For the first time in 25 years, someone seems to truly understand. My body melts. I ease back into being me. And that's when she asked me to do a sting phone call. So with that being said, how do you feel with calling him and trying to get him to take some kind of responsibility today for his actions and then I can record that conversation. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to try. She told me earlier we'd be calling Yusefi to get him to apologize on tape. It's Sunday afternoon. He might not pick up. Hi, is this Dr. Yusefi? Speaking. Hey, this is Tennessee Watson calling you again. Um, I came and interviewed you uh, last February, I think it was, as well. Yeah, right, 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 right. How are you doing? I'm fine. Um, I'm calling because there was, uh, when I interviewed you, I think one thing that I didn't say in that last interview is that... Um, I've been dealing with the impact of um, actions that you took when I was one of your students, um, and I'm calling to see if um, I could get an apology for what you did. Do you want me to tell you what I'm talking about? Um, Well, so I was a student, and um, when we would do the straddle stretch, um, there were a couple points where you 
put your hands in my leotard and touched my genitals. Uh, I don't know what more point you can have. This is outrageous. I cannot really handle this kind of thing. I've never done such a thing. I've never done such a thing to anyone. Maybe I'm the only one that you did it to, but it's really, like, I need to know that I'm the only one. I try in a lot of different ways to get him to acknowledge what happened, but some version of I don't know what you're talking about is what he says in response almost every single time. I don't know what you are talking about five times. I have no recollection six times. I have no idea what you're talking about six times. He says never 17 times. Never done such a thing. Never ever. Never done anything to anyone. Never done it. Never did it. Never ever ever. And that's when he goes from not remembering what happened to not remembering me. So I don't, how do you explain bringing me behind a mat and hiding? Like, how do you? I cannot tolerate to hold on to it. I cannot tolerate to, to uh, control my anger. I'm extremely angry right now. I'm extremely upset. I'm extremely in pain that you are accusing me of something I've never ever done to anyone. Well, how do you, what do you, what am I supposed to do with that memory? I've been in extreme pain for 25 years. Uh, if I'm, I'm responsible for it, am I responsible for whatever I've ever done? You're responsible for what you did, yeah, and I'm calling to ask for you to say that you're sorry to me. You know, I never did such a thing that you're talking about. I've never done it, I never did it, I never, it is not, there's something that God He won't has. apologize. Detective Norton tells me to end the call. I've done all I can do. We hop in her Crown Vic, and she drives me to my friend's place in D.C. It's not all lost. There's still a long way into the investigation. It'll take a while, but... um... Kimberly, as I'm calling her by this point, says she's going to talk to the prosecutor, Christina Robinson, and try to convince her to take the case. Yusefi's leotard alibi will make it hard to prove he had sexual intent. We'd need to find other victims. It's all going faster than I was expecting. Suddenly, this is a case. Did he mean to cause me this much harm? What if he really doesn't remember? Am I about to ruin this man's life? I want you to know that a victim's words alone are enough to to get a warrant and also enough to get um, a conviction. 
I look at Kimberly and her hands at 10 and 2 on the wheel and marvel that even if I don't trust my gut, she trusts hers. There it is. It's right there. Is it really? Yep. Those little green roofs right there. It's a shitty thing to wish for, but I hope she finds other victims. November 19th, 2013. Two days later, at 10.39 a.m., I get an email from Kimberly Norton. I spoke with a prosecutor She'd spoken to Christina Robinson, the prosecutor. I try not to scan down for the bad news. I force myself to go line by line. She told me that I didn't have enough. The prosecutor isn't willing to arrest Yusefi based on my testimony alone. Ms. Robinson said I need to find more. And Kimberly delivers. Spent yesterday in Arlington, Virginia. She found another victim. And found a 15-year-old report. She'd found the police reports in the neighboring county. A victim came forward and alleged someone... He'd done this to someone else. Process of locating this woman who made the report in 1997. Her name is Gina. I'm still searching for more. Detective Norton. I learned she's nine years older than me. She told a guidance counselor at school who reported it to the police. This was in the early 80s, before I'd even started taking gymnastics. Gina's family was about to move, and her dad was worried about his little girl being part of a trial, so they didn't push for prosecution. In her early 20s, Gina moved back to the area and was working at a coffee shop. Dr. Yusefi would come in to get coffee. That's when she went to the police again, 1997. But Yusefi denied the abuse, and the prosecutor didn't take the case. Kimberly says she can't give any details about what Yusefi did, except to say that what happened to Gina was worse. What he did clearly demonstrates sexual intent. But there's a problem. Gina can't be a witness in my case. The abuse happened in a different jurisdiction, in Arlington County. Kimberly explains that what we need is to convince the prosecutor in Gina's county to reopen her case. When Kimberly calls to tell her about finding the old police report and to tell her about me, apparently Gina sobs on the other end of the phone, overwhelmed to know she isn't the only one. Kimberly has another important discovery to share. Gina's dad is a colonel in the Army. Take the name Gina... Combine Gina with my childhood nickname, Tenny. You probably Susan. knew me as Tenny, though. That might have been Je- what you Jenny Watson. Tenny. Tenny Watson, probably. Yeah. Uh, years ago. And the, his, her father was the colonel, an army colonel. And then... No, my dad's not a colonel. Yes, I just noticed they are different, different Watson. Okay. He'd confused Gina and me. The one thing we have in common is that he molested us. November rolls by, and so does most of December. I tell Kimberly to ask Gina if I can call her. She gets Gina's permission to share her number. But Kimberly cautions me that Gina's going through a hard time. I hold off on calling. January. 
February, no news. March, nothing. April, nothing. Kimberly asked for photos from the time the abuse occurred. I send a picture of me on my front porch. I'm rocking my acid-washed miniskirt and my arms are wrapped around my dog whose name was Trouble. I joke that this expression of my spunk might not be the best choice for the jury. She responds, LOL, that is an adorable pic and an accurate representation of the lady I met last month. Smile face emoji. May. The prosecutor in Arlington will not reopen Gina's case. It feels unlikely they'll move forward on mine, too. And then, bam. Two days later, I get this email from Kimberly. Happy Cinco de Mayo! Exclamation point. I have one felony warrant for Mr. Yusefi right now. He has one hour to turn himself in or I will visit him at the gym. Winky face emoji. Alone, Virginia gymnastics coach is behind bars charged with aggravated sexual battery. Parvis Yusefi is accused of abusing a student several years ago, starting when she was six years old. News Force Darcy Spencer went to his gym in Manassas tonight, where parents were shocked by the allegations. Michelle McKelvey and Meg Delane have been bringing their daughter to GMS for gymnastics for about a year. Kimberly and Christina decided to take a risk and have him arrested for aggravated sexual battery based on my testimony alone. They are both hoping that media coverage of his arrest will bring more of his victims to the surface. Wednesday, 6th. Thursday, 7th. And it works. Two days later, Kimberly sends me this. Another victim came forward. I want to cry right now. Parentheses with happiness. Close parentheses. She reported years ago to Maryland police, and they refused to move forward. I will be contacting her today. And then she gets another call from a woman in Maryland, who also said she'd reported as a child. Same deal. The police did nothing. There are four of us. I think again about that statistic, that only one in ten victims of child sexual abuse will report. I try to do the math. If one in 10 people, then that's one over 10 equals solve for X. X. One times X, four times 10 equals 40. Does that mean that there are actually 40 of us? In the eyes of the Prince William County Court, I'm still just one. These other victims were abused in different jurisdictions. But when I think about the possibility of going on the stand, It's way less scary knowing for certain this wasn't just a mistake. At which point I'm like, shit, this might actually go to trial. May, Monday, Tuesday, 7, Monday, Wednesday, 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 Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday, June, Friday, 5th, Saturday, 6th. In early June 2014, I go to meet with prosecutor Christina Robinson at the Prince William County Courthouse. She wants to meet me in person, find out what my goals are. I know she's sizing me up as a witness. As I'm going in, I flip my septum piercing up so it's hidden from view. I want her to take me seriously. Even though I feel more certain than ever that Dr. Yusefi is dangerous, I still feel strongly that him rotting in prison is not going to make me feel better. I have this vision of using the threat of prosecution 
to leverage something else. I spent the last month researching restorative justice options, and I'm here to convince Christina Robinson that that's what we should do. Restorative justice would mean bypassing court and doing mediation instead. Yusefi would get treatment, he'd get educated on sexual abuse, his family would have support. I get to tell him how it hurt, get to ask why he did what he did. I want him to have the chance to publicly say he wants to change and he wants to heal. Christina Robinson walks in. I've been hearing about her for the last year, but this is the first time I've actually met her. She's in her mid-40s, striped maxi dress, blonde hair, flats. She moves a giant stack of legal files from a tan leather couch to the floor to make room for me. I feel dumb for hiding my nose ring, but her relaxed demeanor gives me the sense she knows what she's doing. I sit down and ask her about the possibility of a restorative justice conference plea. She's open to it, but she wants to charge him with something hefty enough to get him on the sex offender registry if possible. I don't like the idea of the sex offender registry. I tell myself just to keep moving, to wait and see what actually happens. Monday, 11, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, July, Wednesday, July 2014, Kimberly calls. Tina is dead. She died in May. The cause of death? A drug overdose. I learned that she'd struggled from addiction, eating disorders, the harshest of the long-term symptoms of sexual abuse. Kimberly and Christina allude to the fact that they think it might have been a suicide. And I think about the months and months when I didn't call her. I did to her what I know people have done to me, hold off from bringing it up, worried that reaching out might turn a good day into a bad day. But when Gina died, the damaging effects of not speaking out rang loud and clear for me. She bravely tried to face it, again and again and again, and no one intervened, no one helped her take action, and Yusefi just went on unchecked. Going to trial, facing Yusefi, his attorney, and being scrutinized by 12 jurors is scary. But in honor of Gina, there is no way I'm backing down. The scariest thing I've ever faced was watching my mother die when I was 15 years old. She was larger than life, a constant fighter. I think that that action is needed on the part of women, and we've got to be sure that people don't scare us into a corner because someone says we're acting like uh, raving feminists. And we're going to have to take a few hits on that, but know deep down in our hearts that it's the right thing to do. Her six-month battle with lung cancer unfolded in my home. What I learned from watching her die is the essence of who I am. On the wall beside her bed was a small painting of a barn and a rising moon with the phrase, now that my barn is burned, I can see the moon. All this hardship is a blessing, a chance to see something in a new way, a chance to push the edge of resiliency. August 9th, 10th, September, Monday, 12th, Tuesday, 13th. Wednesday, October, Friday, November, 
Thursday, June 4th, I'm sitting in a cafe with my dad and my friend Shannon. I'm having a pre-trial send-off margarita. We're huddled around a tiny round table when I get a call from Christina Robinson, the prosecutor. Christina is calling to say that come Monday, there will be no trial. Her boss told her he was sure we'd lose and instructed her to negotiate a plea bargain. She lays out what we're up against. You know, I, you just, I can never predict exactly what a jury is going to do, but I just could, can't see them saying it, the memory of a young woman in her 30s remembering something that happened when she was six or seven years old is enough beyond a reasonable doubt, especially when opposed by all these other allegedly contradictory things. I mean, you've got 20 witnesses lined up. Um, some of them are character. Many of them have to do with other uh, surrounding things, like people saying that uh, there was never opportunities for you guys to be completely alone at the gym. The defense attorney thinks he can convince the jury that it's impossible that Yusefi and I were ever alone in that gym, and Christina Robinson has no way of proving that we were. So Dr. Yusefi is going to get a sweet deal. He gets contributing to the delinquency of a minor. It's a misdemeanor. All he has to do is stay away from kids under 12 for the next year. They threw in a mental health evaluation, too. She tries to convince me that this is a victory. If you search his name now, what's the first thing that's going to come up? You know, that the gym lost over a third of their business. Man, I don't know. I mean, I guess... Like, where does the where does the possibility of the restorative justice conference plea, like, do any of those sort of principles that I was interested in have any room in? Um, I, I, I addressed that, and I, and I said, is there any way to get that? And basically that's when I was told he would not look you in the eye and say, I did this, Tennessee. I, I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry that it, what it caused you in your life. And, and, you know, that other component of, you know, really examining why abusers do what they do, he, there, there's no way that this defendant is going gonna, is gonna to get there. And I can tell you that that's very common for abusers. They, they, most of the time they won't really face the depths of what they've done. Um, you know, occasionally you get somebody who, who actually will break through the other side. But Christina tells me, technically, I don't even have to appear in court on Monday. All right, well, I'm, I'm sorry that, I guess, I don't know, sorry. Is, I, I, yes, I am sorry that, that I, you know, that it was, that I had to say it in this way and it was a difficult conversation. Um, but I, I'm still willing to answer any follow-up questions that you have, okay? Okay. All right, thank you, Tennessee. Have a good night. Bye, you too. Bye. Bye.
Bill and I head to Virginia as planned. I text Christina Robinson that I'm coming no matter what, and that I want to make a statement. It's not a trial, so there's no reason to have me speak. But she writes back to say she'll try to make something happen. The drive down is pretty quiet. I'm mad at Bill. He was slow to get out of bed this morning. Of all the days, I don't feel like I should be helping someone else get their shit together. I didn't get up and and leave on her schedule from New York, and so we were later than than we were supposed to be. And so we kind of had this tension going the whole ride down. I check in with her and say, how are you doing? And she says, I'm doing fine. And But there's always a little edge in her voice when she says I'm doing fine that makes me think she isn't. And then she asks me how I'm doing. And on a couple of occasions, I've said I'm not doing so well. I'm, I'm struggling with this. We're driving straight into doom. The only thing I have to look forward to is Yeshe's arrival. I was actually in California, and I flew out for the court case. I might have just farted. I'm recording. (laughs) 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 I think you can record the smell of it. Yeshe and I watched the Golden State Warriors play the Cleveland Cavaliers on the hotel room television. Oh, here we go. There's the Warriors. Oh, oh man. I'm sorry. It's all right. I just got back from, like, down by eight. I fall asleep in little spoon position under overly starched sheets. Monday, June 8th, 2015. I go out for a steamy 6.30 a.m. run. The hotel is right next to the Civil War historic site where Adam and I went to watch the meteor shower. I head that way to hit the trails. That means as I cross the hotel parking lot and glance across Route 66, I can see the green roof line of Dr. Giuseppe's gym. This could be a hard run. So much to prove to myself about feeling focused and strong. But I tell myself to breathe. All I have to do is be in my body and pay attention to how I feel. And it feels badass to be alone out there in those woods on this contentious ground and to not be afraid. I shower, throw on a dress, grab a banana and a cup of coffee for breakfast, and we head to court. The humidity is burning off. Wide open hot parking lot between me and the courthouse. The sun feels good. Cars are streaming in, lawyers and bailiffs and judges parking to go to work, and Dr. Yusefi and his family. They're behind me as Yeshe and I make our way towards the door. I bring along a small, crappy recorder and let it run inside my bag. I think that's probably the best indicator of how over this I feel. I meet with Christina and Kimberly first. They acknowledge that this did not turn out the way I was led to believe it would. Very, we speculate very about what might have been better and, and what might have been worse. completely denied that he had ever done anything to his daughter. But then when it came to the trial, he got up on the Kimberly tells me she woke up thinking about this other case where there was DNA evidence. The guy was facing 17 counts of rape. It happened for years, starting when the victim was under 18 and continued as she got older. He claimed that it was consensual. 
that was how we explained the DNA. And the jury acquitted him. I know that you've never experienced that. That's the first thing that I thought about this morning, the devastation that that girl saw when 12 people stood up and said, we don't believe you. I felt like this is not really a good plea at all, but I feel like the devastation of hearing a not guilty would be worse for you, and you just can't realize it right now because you're not in the position of the women that I've Kimberly was relieved that I wouldn't have to face a jury, that I wouldn't have to face the burden of proof. We file out of the office and down to the courtroom. I mean, going to court is always just sort of this very bizarre thing. You know, you've got, like, this old white guy sitting up on a, like, you know, pedestal um, telling people what their fate is going to be. And, you know, of course, every person in front of that we had to wait for was a person of color, and their fates were all not good and he was just sort of laying down the law one after the other and so that sort of like set the tone people came and went as the cases were heard um i have a very clear image of uh dr yusefi almost not moving sitting on the bench uh his hands folded in his lap a gray suit gray check tie almost off-white shirt, I, soft white is, I think, the way I would describe it, his ankles crossed, and he just held that position and stared straight ahead. When I saw him in the courtroom, um, I wanted to fuck him up. I, like, I really, and, and his, actually his lawyer even more, almost. And what would you like to just know about how, what this has affected, how this has affected your life? Uh, Tennessee took the stand. I was just sort of on the verge of tears. I mean, it was that, that's kind of, I had to choke it back a little bit because how do you let that happen? And there's no doubt in my mind that it did, so. I was looking at my 34-year-old daughter and listening to my 34-year-old daughter and seeing my 7-year-old daughter. And that was what was tough because it was like you should be able to walk across that courtroom and intervene, intervene and stop the event before it actually happens. Say, wait a minute, take those mats down. No, you can't do that. I mean, and you can't. I didn't want to come forward and interrogate um, or indict the entire character of Dr. Yusefi. It was not my intent to come out and say he is a bad person, but I wanted to draw attention to a mistake that was made. That was a violation of my body. Um, 
and ultimately do what I, whatever I could in my power in collaboration with the state to make sure that that mistake was never made again. Um, that this couldn't happen to any other kid. And I think that ultimately the burden of considering the welfare of the students somehow felt shifted to me, and that's the weight that I've carried. Um, the one time I wanted to yell at somebody is I wanted to yell at um, Dr. Yousefi's attorney. Uh, I really wanted to walk out of the courtroom next to him and look at him and say that was a brilliant summation, but not a word of it was true. They were together in that gym. He was giving her private lessons. I put the check on the desk. I paid for them. So he pleads guilty, but they refuse to accept his guilty plea. As long as he goes to his counseling session, he'll be found not guilty. And the charges that he was even pleading guilty to were, uh, were really upsettingly minor. I did get the judge's final words down in my notebook, and I got them down precisely based on the state's case. Court finds you guilty. Um, and even though that's only for a year. And then we left, and I, and I mean, I commented to Kimberly that it must be really hard for her to to work within this system and feel like she's get, she's having any gains. And she didn't seem so pessimistic and said that, well, at least he, you know, pled guilty. So, you know, we could con we can consider that kind of a win. And I just, I didn't really have anything to say to that. I mean, I did, but I, I didn't want to, I know that she worked really hard on the case. And we head out to the hot parking lot, and I peel off my court costume, the obligatory black blazer I was wearing to cover up the spaghetti straps of my dress. Yeshe and I hop in the car and head north, and we drive out to the beach, just to let the wind and the sea blow off the day. A storm is coming in, and the beach is getting beaten with waves, and the wind is picking up all this sand, whipping it down the beach, and it's just pelting us, coating us in sand. Yeshe and I peel off our clothes and we go in for a swim. And it's really rough and we get dragged down the beach. Let the salt water cleanse this wound. I'm 35 now. 35. Beautiful. Do more. I don't see a lot of people sticking up for themselves. It's really scary to talk about this by myself. Standing in front of GMS Gymnastics. I did not share it with my mother. I'm calling to report a crime. I'm not interested in saying that he's a bad person. Like, um, like where do you want to start? Wow, okay, where do I want to start? Um, who would I be if this hadn't happened? We crawl back out, find our clothes, dry off, 
get in the car and head up the coast. And that is the end of episode three of Silent Evidence. After listening to this episode, you might be having a lot of feelings, and you might be wondering about the criminal justice system and what just happened. Tennessee, just so happens, is working on an investigative piece that gets into all of the legal nitty-gritty of how sexual abuse cases fall through the cracks. For example, why if four women came forward Was Tennessee's prosecutor the only one who went forward with the case? These are the kinds of questions that she'll be getting at in this amazing piece that she's doing in collaboration with this other show called Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, NPRX. It's a really great show, and she's working with Laura Starczewski and Deb George, and the story is going to be the perfect companion to the work that we've done to show the more emotional face of this issue. That episode is going to be coming out on August 6th, so you have to wait a little while, but I would recommend subscribing to the Reveal podcast right now to make sure that you don't miss it when it comes out. There's one more episode in our Silent Evidence mini-season. Next week, what now? Tennessee and I are going to unpack the last three episodes and talk about things that have happened and things that we've learned over the last year making this series If you have questions about anything that you've heard or anything else related to this topic that you would like to hear us discuss, tweet us at The Heart Radio with the hashtag Silent Evidence Project, and maybe we can get you some answers. The Silent Evidence season is made by me, Caitlin Prest, and Tennessee Watson. We had editing from Sharon Mashihi and Mitra Kaboli, editorial consulting from Pike Malinowski, assistant production by Ashley Cortez, Additional help reporting from Jocelyn Frank. The heart is me, Mitra, and Jen Ng. Big thanks to Bill Watson and Suzanne, who had Tennessee and I over for many salmon dinners to break up our long work hours in Vermont. You heard music in this episode by Matthew Daher. Check his stuff out at matthewdahermusic.com. This project was made possible with funding from the IWMF Howard Buffett Fund for Women Journalists. Thanks to MailChimp and the Knight Foundation, as always for supporting Radiotopia shows. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.